0: I think once you try to communicate in a very unnatural form, um, lecturing to the public or reading a prepared statement, it, it comes across as false. So I think my tip I always give to people who are trying to speak in public is talk to your audience. Don't shout at them. Don't lecture to them. But Talk to them.
1: Hello, my name is John Higginson and I'm on a mission to revolutionise communications by focusing on the power of purpose. Each episode I'm talking to someone who has successfully used communications to amplify their voice publicly. This week I'm joined by Vince Cable, former leader of the Liberal Democrats. In May 2019, Sir Vince led the Liberal Democrats to their best national electoral performance since the 2010 election, gaining 15 seats in the European Parliament. It would be remiss of me not to mention that partner Clodagh Higginson was Sir Vince's press secretary at the time. Since stepping down as leader of the party, Sir Vince has established himself as an expert economics commentator and author, recently publishing an excellent book called Money and Power, The 16 World Leaders Who Changed Economics, and the Chinese Conundrum, Engagement or Conflict. Sir Vince, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. As this podcast is about the power of communication, I thought we could start with one of the first things I remember you saying many years ago. In 2007, I was relatively new as a political correspondent, sitting down in my seat above the Speaker of the House of Commons, and it was Prime Minister's questions. And the Prime Minister was Labour's Gordon Brown, who looked like he'd been preparing for a general election, but then failed to go ahead with it at the last minute. The leader of the opposition was David Cameron, who week in, week out, would win PMQs with a barrage of questions. As the political event of the week, it was hard for any but the two main parties to get much of a look in. But as the third largest party, the Liberal Democrats would get one question. And then Nick Clegg was off for some reason. So you got your shot. And you said, using humour, what I believe was the most memorable line of the day and one of the most memorable lines of Gordon's premiership. Do you remember what that was?
0: Well, I think this was about Mr. Bean, wasn't it? I've forgotten the exact. It was. It was. So you that said that, um, you know, the prime minister has been transformed from Stalin to Mr. Bean, uh, kind of creating um, chaos out of order rather than order out of chaos. I think that I think that's more or less word
1: perfect. Exactly. Well, there you are. Um, so just tell me about what are the what are the ingredients of a good message then?
0: Well, I sort of reflect a little bit on some of the political messaging that affected me in my earlier years. And I think, you know, the first election I ever got involved in was Harold Wilson, 1964. And I remember that there was the first of these three word slogans that have, you know, people have used through the ages. It was then 13 wasted years, and then the Tories later had Labour isn't working, and Tony Blair had education, education, education. And recently we've had take back control. You know, very simple three-word, very memorable things. I mean, I remember slogans going back 50 years. And then there were the kind of rhythmic, alliterative things, a bit longer, but equally memorable. Remember Blair and we will tackle crime and the causes of crime or well actually i remember harold wilson because it was my first political figure really that i voted for the white hot heat of the technological revolution i mean these um if it had just been nine words or whatever we wouldn't remember it but there was sufficient cadence in the sound to make it stick so simple memorable phrases that really hit home don't they
1: they do yeah and so Being a politician is all about purpose and uh, everyone talks about purpose now, meaning a higher purpose, doing something for more than just uh, making money. And as a politician, you go into it for the chance to make the world a better place. How difficult was it when you were in government to communicate the good that you were doing because of all the fighting about the negative stories?
0: It was very difficult. I mean, partly because we had lost trust as a result of the, if you remember, the tuition fee. I mean, the tuition fee pledge was a brilliant piece of public relations and it's a brilliant piece of communication. But, of course, if you can't then deliver it, you finish up looking very bad, which is, of course, what happened. And similarly, there was a pledge backed by um, a brilliant photograph on never increasing value added tax and again you know, we couldn't deliver it. So you're left looking both stupid and, and, and dishonest. Other parties have, you know, gone to the same mistake. It, it must have seemed rather smart when David Cameron uh, promised to have a referendum on Europe because he thought they would never have one and they'd be bound to win it anyway. So it was a, an easy thing to do in government. But then, you know, we know the horrible, fateful consequences. I mean, so, you know, being in government, you tend to be unless you've got very good communication system to be on the defensive and explaining what you've done uh, rather than giving forward indicators and so you need a very good communication system to overcome that
1: yeah so you get to the heart there of that kind of trust issue and i suppose it's very useful getting across a message but as you say if down the line you don't deliver on that message then you lose that trust don't you and and so how important is it to make sure that what you're saying early on isn't being said just to grab a headline and, and, and is done on the basis of something that you absolutely believe will be true and delivered?
0: Of course, you've got to think about consistency. I mean, there are some politicians, who of course, get away without it. I mean, you know, not not least Boris Johnson who for a long time, you know, got away with being a colourful character and nobody ever really believed what he said anyway, but they forgave him for it. So it didn't really matter when he did uh, numerous uh, 180 degree reverse turns on policy. But if you've built a reputation for being straight with the public, then you have to be straight with the public.
1: When you're in opposition, how did you communicate the things that you cared about, such as housing and tech reform? when often the only thing that you're asked about was the big issue of the day, which was Brexit.
0: Yes. It's not just when I was in government. It happens now. I mean, I will go on to uh, television to have a conversation about, you know, the economic consequences of the Ukraine war or some topical issue that I have some opinions on. And the only question they want to ask is why are the liberal Democrats at X percent in the opinion polls? Very, very difficult to shift the debate onto your own territory. But you've got to try and do it.
1: What kind of tools do you use to try and do that? Do you do, you do the uh, standard answer the question and then bridge over to what you want to talk about?
0: Uh, well, I, I, I never did that. Actually, I, I thought you, you know you can shift the conversation onto your own subject, but then you get a reputation for being evasive. And I uh, always took the view when I was dealing with Jeremy Paxman or other difficult um, interrogators. If they ask you a question, you've got to try and answer it because otherwise you look slippery and you may have a successful or what seems to be a successful strategy of changing the subject. But if you're do it in a way that looks evasive, uh, you don't get away with it. So you've got to plan these interviews very carefully, be very courteous and direct in answering any questions, and then using that as a peg to move on to the subject you want to talk about. But you can't avoid answering a question, I think. Too many politicians do that, and they lose credibility um, by
1: doing so um how useful do you think a big set piece speeches such as the, the 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 main speech that you might get at party conference in communicating your platform
0: well i i always found this quite difficult because i hate set piece red speeches and uh, auto cues and i much prefer to ad lib but of course if you ad lib you you make mistakes uh, you miss key points that you were going to make and it and it may come across as a sort of undisciplined shambles, if you remember um Ed Miliband's reputation was pretty much destroyed when he tried to copy david cameron in memorizing a speech rather than reading it and he missed out a key chunk about the economy and that sort of stuck in people's mind that this guy really isn't serious so if if you are doing a set speech i guess you have to do it properly what i would do uh, although i say my my preferred style of speech making is just to have some rough notes and speak from that um, is if you're doing a set speech, you've got to, you know, write it out, consult people, try to um, get somebody who's got a good line in jokes to suggest a few good one-liners. And you need to go over it so that you, you're emphasizing the right points at the right time. And it's fairly clear listening to other politicians that some people get this and some people don't. I mean, Tony Blair was brilliant at the set speech, almost certainly, reading every single word of it, uh, but it didn't look like it, and it, it was very effective. Gordon Brown, although, you know, in many ways not a great communicator, was very, very effective at making a speech, a set speech. He wasn't terribly good at the more informal stuff, but he was very good at the set speech. But other people come across, Simon mean, and Starmer at the moment, despite his undoubted personal qualities, comes across rather wooden, developing a style of speaking that is carefully prepared but also looks spontaneous uh, is, is is quite an art actually
1: well let 's move into writing as a form of communication, and that 's where you 've uh, you 're moving to much more since moving out of parliament i 've always been impressed by the way that you 've been able to break down quite complex subjects, going right back to more than a decade ago when you wrote the storm on the on your take on the financial crash and as I mentioned previously you 've written a number of books on economics and china and and subjects that people might seem to think of as quite thick subjects but you write them in a very accessible way how do you how do you manage to do that
0: it it's it's very difficult i mean i used to be an economics lecturer when i was young i have long since moved away from that but one of the things you learn is that making a transition from formal economics to public communications it's a very very big step i mean economics is full of jargon right opportunity cost, comparative advantage, the laws of supply and demand, economic rent, globalization, monopoly, probably most people think of it as a board game. Economists use these terms uh, without explaining them and just assuming that people know what they mean, which they don't. And it's even a bigger problem with numbers. Servers have shown that large numbers of members of the public have no idea what a percentage means. So when you talk about, you know, four percent unemployment or two percent annual growth, you know, these things just don't automatically communicate themselves, and many people don't. Know what the hell are you talking about? And there, there's a distinction which is obvious to most people who've done economics or done done elementary maths and calculus. That was a distinction between levels, you know, the level of unemployment, the rate of change. In other words, inflation, GDP growth, or change in the rate of change, accelerating inflation. Now, these are quite subtle concepts. And unless you're absolutely clear with your audience what you're trying to say and and not assuming too much, you're just failing communication. I suppose one of the things I've been trying to develop over the years is how to get complex economic ideas across through metaphors and other figures of speech without sounding condescending, which is also important that you're not just talking down to the public, but you're talking with them. Uh, and uh, the process of converting economics into everyday conversation, it's, it's a big step. Uh, and I, I guess I've, I've worked on it. I wouldn't say I'm the best by any means, but I, I do at least recognize the problem. Can you let me know
1: what, what you believe one of your biggest communication successes has been over the years?
0: Well, actually, I, I had one in the last few days, which may surprise you. But I, uh, you mentioned at the beginning that I uh, wrote this book called The Chinese Conundrum. Which is a very Actually, I'm rather proud of it. I really worked hard on it. I accumulated all the evidence. I made the arguments very carefully. But I think so far it's sold about two thousand copies in hardback. It will maybe do much better when it gets into paperback. But it's it's um, it's very much a, a book for the um, aficionados. But then I discovered the other day that I'd made a short speech on China. Actually, it was in the Oxford Union, and has so far had a hundred million viewers on YouTube. Um, which puts me up with Kim Kardashian and, and all that. Um, so, but, but I didn't, it wasn't a success I planned, but it did illustrate that if you hit the right note at the right time with the right audience, uh, you get to a, a much bigger, bigger audience.
1: Mm, well, there you go, you're breaking the internet like Kim Kardashian. And Can you tell me of any time that you think you might have had a communications failure?
0: I think I've already referred to it once already, but I think that the the whole problem of trying to communicate the tuition fee episode was not good. I mean, I was in the heart of the policy, and I think we were doing the right things, actually, but it wasn't properly explained. Another thing that I was very controversially involved with was the sale of the Royal Mail. It It was the right thing to do. It was actually, in retrospect, a big success, and it's achieved what it was supposed to have achieved. But at the time, um, the only thing people were focusing on was the price in the market. And I was constantly on the defensive trying to explain why it had gone up as much as it did. And it shouldn't have done. So, yeah, I mean, there there are those things which you still cringe about when you think about them in retrospect. Um, On the other hand, some of the successes, I mean, I got a very high profile as a result of what was happening during the banking crisis and it really started with an interview I gave at a party conference about when the the banking crisis was beginning to break with Northern Rock and I I only sort of half understood what the problem was but I did manage to get across to the news at 10 I think it was that uh, the, the nature of the problem in a few sentences and how to deal with it. And I was it was a real stab in the dark that unknown to me, nobody else was saying the same thing. And so I became a kind of instant celebrity on the back of the banking crisis. And it kept me busy for a year.
1: I think I remember the line actually. You called them the spivs and speculators. And that yes, was another was
0: a few phrases like that. Yeah,
1: it was a clever way of illustrating to people what you thought of uh, people like Fred Goodwin. As we are currently in a situation where Russia has invaded uh, Ukraine, it would be remiss not to talk about the kind of communications war that's going on there. We were always sold the idea with uh, social media that actually it would open up everyone's mind and allow everyone to make better communications decisions. What do you think about why it is that, for instance, a large bulk of people in Russia believe that there has been no invasion, whereas people in the West believe there is? Can you comment on Putin's...
0: I mean, if you have a monopoly of communications, then people are going to believe it, aren't they? And it's not just true of Russia, but but true of many other countries where the state is effectively in charge of the media. And I think the the key thing in Russia is television. But you've got the same level of brainwashing. I mean, we had it in the United States and the, and the, the people who and critically followed Donald Trump and still do i 'm not quite sure whether it was that they were all Twitter followers or that he was just very skillful in playing back to them what they already thought, but a combination of his skill with social media and the fact that there weren't effective alternative voices in the in the main areas where trumpery was was taking hold had an equal effect of indoctrinating the public but you know they're important countries now i mean not just Russia, China, India, to some extent, used to have a very lively, pluralistic uh, media, uh, increasingly now dominated by the ruling party, and it's true of many countries. And I guess the default position of many people
1: is to believe in what their own government's telling them. Final question. Do you have any tip for someone that wants to get their message across?
0: I think what I've always tried to do and I've found successful is to try to be conversational, I think once you try to communicate in a very unnatural form, um, lecturing to the public or reading a prepared statement, it it comes across as false. So I think my tip I always give to people who are trying to speak in public is talk to your audience. Don't shout at them, don't lecture to them, but talk to them.
1: Sir Vince Cable, thank you very much indeed. This is Communicating with Purpose with John Higginson. Thanks for listening good.